All right, good morning. We are partway through, or midway through, a series on the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6. And in week one, Sarah presented about how our interactions with God must stem from our acknowledgement, first of all, that He is our Father, that He is in heaven and He's not of this earth. And then part two, Enoch talked about how God's name is hallowed, hallowed be thy name, and that when we pray, it's actually worship of God. And then last week in part three, Sarah explored how when we pray for God's kingdom to come, it's not of this world, it's an upside down kingdom. Thy kingdom come changes the rules, changes the mindset, um, and that it's a very powerful prayer to make when we bring God's authority here to this earth. And today we explore the next part of the prayer, thy will be done. Probably one of the toughest uh, concepts in the Bible, I believe, because how do we talk about God's will? And how do we supersede that from our will? Um, Did you ever listen to a song that just stuck with you all day? The tune was just something you could not get out of your head. Has anyone experienced that? For me, it was uh, que sera. Now, I don't speak Italian, I don't speak Spanish, so I'm not sure if I'm even saying that right. Um, But que sera by the Justice Crew was one such song. And it came from an old 1956 song that was uh, called Que Sera Sera, uh, which basically was an old Doris Day song. Now, the chorus goes a little bit like this. Let me see if this will work. At the end of the days that I'm here with some friends that I know always there. Pretty catchy tune, right? Que sera, what does that mean? Well, you might have heard the original song, which was Que sera, sera, and it was written um, for Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much movie. And it has a strong dose of fatalism in the song, in the lyrics, and it goes like this. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. In that classic 1956 film that featured Jimmy Stewart, Doris Day, it was a couple whose boy is kidnapped and they accidentally get caught up in an international conspiracy. Into the plot, suggesting that the chaos and the danger that the couple face in attempting to rescue their son are unavoidable, no matter what they do. And to many people, That same fatalism comes to mind when we start talking about God's will. Regardless of what they do, God has his own mind made up already, so whatever will be, will be. In fact, the familiar phrase in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, is often seen as a Shakespearean equivalent to que sera, sera. Just what does it mean to pray for God's will to be done in our lives? Does it mean throwing up your hands and your arms into the air and resigning yourself to an uncertain fate? Or is there an actual deeper promise that we can hold on to when we pray for his will to be done? You see, it's a battle of wills. Throughout the Bible, we find examples of people obedient to God, praying for the Lord's will to be carried out. And Daniel's about to be put into a fiery furnace for refusing to bow down to the God of the king of Nebuchadnezzar. When they said, in effect, we pray for God to save us, but if not, may his will be done. 
Or I think of stubborn Jonah, who had to get eaten by a whale uh, before coming to the conclusion, thy will be done. But in the end, he did. In fact, the look at the Hall of Faith giants in Hebrew 11 shows story after story of people who submitted their will to that of God. Praying for God's will sounds well and good until you think about the possible downside. The result may mean that your will is not done. Now, that's a scary thought for many. Praying for God's will sounds well and good until you think about the possibility that you and I may not see eye to eye with God. In fact, we're going to clash in a contest of wills, my will versus God's will. And in large part, this battle of wills comes from different thinking, the fact that we think differently from God. And there's four key ways, there may be more, but there's four that I've come up with that our thinking differs from God. And the first is we think here and now. When God looks at things in the light of eternity, the outlook of us mere mortals like you and me is simply focused on here and now. We may give an occasional thought to what's ahead, you know, but the future is always within my or perhaps my children's lifetimes. God is based on eternity, whereas my head starts to spin when I think about my children starting to drive a car, let alone that far ahead. Imagine yourself walking through a giant life-size maze in search of the exit door. During the walk, you can see only the passageway directly in front of you, or maybe behind you, but you have no real clue how your current position relates to the overall goal of getting out of the maze. On a hunch, you may make a run for what you think is the way out, but ultimately, your understanding of the situation is only a guess, given your limited perspective. Contrast that with God, who has a bird's eye view of the entire maze, sees the beginning and the end points, and because of this fact, if you were to let God lead you through the puzzle, he would take you around twists and turns that you might think were pretty superfluous, maybe even unnecessary, or even in the wrong direction. Yet, in actuality, they're needed steps to reach the exit goal. In the same way, your will and mine are often based on a ground-level here-and-now perspective, and it doesn't take into account the full scope of reality. God's will does. The second way of thinking differently to God is we're the insta-worthy generation. Well, maybe the younger ones are. I'm not so much. Growing up, I wasn't involved in any form of social media. For me, social media meant sitting around watching a movie with my friends on an old VHS tape, likely recorded the night before. Now everything seems to be seen through the snapshot of social media in a watch party. You don't even have to be together. So many people catch a glimpse of others' lives through the photos and videos that are posted online, and we think we're catching up with them. And you and I view life in much the same way, a snapshot of reality. Those pictures of what's in front of us help form our interests and our passions, as well as influence what we're concerned enough about to pray for. If you're like me, your prayers are usually about you and your family, friends, acquaintances, maybe people at your place of worship and the occasional government leader. But when you go to God with this narrow perspective, such prayers may not factor in other people who would be affected if God answered your prayer the way you want him to. But once again, God sees the big picture. He has the panoramic wide-angle lens and he knows all the ripple effects that your prayer requests 
and how that specific answer to your prayer could adversely affect someone that you don't know. God refuses to look at your request in a vacuum like you and I would probably prefer he did. Instead, he looks at each request based on all of the reality around and responds accordingly. Thirdly, young and old alike, people are attracted to finish lines. Something deeply rooted in us propels us to meet goals at all costs, striving to break the tape at the end of the race. These finish lines characterize all aspects of our lives, not just athletic events, Landing a new job, buying a new house, finding the right partner, making enough money to retire, and so on. More often than not, much of the time that you and I spend on this earth is in hot pursuit of some goal. Us mortals can easily become consumed, even obsessed, by finish lines. Yet God doesn't give the same importance to end goals like you and I do. He's concerned with our aspirations, sure, helps us achieve them, but he's far more concerned and interested in the eternal outcomes and growth that occurs in our lives in pursuit. And his will reflects that. And fourthly, the first three ways we looked at that we think differently from God aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. More than anything, they're simply part of us being human. However, this final reason we think differently from God is one that we can be blamed for, sin. According to the Bible, except for Jesus, every person who has walked this earth and is walking this earth has sinned. This sin that we have in our lives invariably leads us to selfishness. And being selfish means that we'd rather have what we want when we want it, rather than what's part of God's plan and timing. And this selfishness, when left unchecked, results in our prayers being tainted by self-interest and self-concern, rather than being focused on the will of God and the needs of other people. Sin blocks our ability to see God's will and open ourselves up to prayer and to pray, thy will be done. In doing so, we put ourselves in a contest of wills with God. Job is one such example. You know the story. I'm not going to go through all of it. But Job was a prosperous man of outstanding faith. And Satan in the story acts as an agent provocateur to test whether or not Job's faithfulness is rooted merely in his prosperity and the blessings from God, or whether he actually loved God and connected with him. But faced with the appalling loss of his possessions, his children, and finally his own health, Job still refuses to curse God. His wife encourages him to curse God and to give up and die, but Job refuses, struggling to accept his circumstances. Three of his friends then arrive to comfort him, and at this point, the story probes the meaning of Job's sufferings and the manner in which he should respond. The story consists of three cycles of speeches, if you've read the book of Job, that contains Job's disputes with his three friends and his conversation with God. Job proclaims his innocence and the injustice of his suffering, while his comforters argue that Job is being punished for his sins. With this explanation... Unlike Justice Crew and their lyric of happiness in having their friends close by, Job regrets his friends' words and their presence is not comforting. God finally interrupts, calling from a whirlwind and demanding that Job be brave and respond to his questions. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Job 38. It'll be on the screen, but if you have it, it's always good to read around it in context. But Job 38, in verse 1 says, 
Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this? Sorry, verse 2. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. God's questions are rhetorical, intending to show how little Job knows about creation and how much power God alone has. God goes on to describe many detailed aspects of his creation. And overwhelmed by the encounter, Job acknowledges God's unlimited power and admits the limitations of his human knowledge. Job 42 carries on. Verse 1, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You know, when I look back at my life, I can see many times when I probably acted as Job did. I was motivated by one of those four reasons when praying for God's will in my life. And in every major decision I've had to make, there were definitely aspects of self guiding that process and those prayers. Yet every time, God has come through with an answer. And the hardest of those responses from God are when those answers didn't align with my prayers, my desires. When I was 15, I lived in Papua New Guinea. Uh, I was pretty comfortable at that point, finishing off grade 11. Um, yeah, I had lots of friends, played a lot of sport, uh, had a girlfriend, had a lifestyle that I loved, and yet... It was at the end of year 11, or probably midway through year 11, when our family was asked to move um, and go to Thailand. My prayers were pretty selfish ones, so I admit that. I, looking back at it, remember very clearly, I was like, God, I'm not going. Sorry, parents, I'm not going. They can probably remember it. I was adamant. I was not leaving. You can go. Go for it. I'm staying here. As a 15-year-old, that wasn't going to happen. So I wasn't winning that battle of wills with God or my parents, and so we moved to Thailand. Even though at the time my selfish interest said, no, don't go, you don't want to go, you're happy here. Those ended up being two of the best years of my life. And they had a major impact on me. And looking through those four ways we differ in thinking about God's will for our lives, I could clearly see that I was living in the here and now with my goals as a priority, completely selfish in my thinking and in my prayer life. So the next time I was faced with a major decision, end of Thailand, end of high school, do I chase my basketball dreams or do I go to Avondale? My prayer life was more in alignment with God's will than my selfishness at that point. And so it led to Avondale, led to lifelong friends, led to my wife and my family. And then I get to the last year of college, or uni now, and I had to start thinking about where I was going to go for work. And I had a series of interviews with all of the education departments around Australia and New Zealand. And in those interviews, I said, I want to stay close to Avondale because Heidi still had one more year left. 
I didn't want to be away from her for a whole year. What was God's will? I got a job offer in Adelaide over 17 hours by car. God, what are you doing? This is not my, my will. This is not what I want. But Heidi and I prayed about it and placed the decision in God's hands. And once we made that decision to go, it was an incredible sense of peace. Hard to describe. Time after time in my life, since being faced with major decisions about whether to stay or whether to accept other offers of employment around the country, I've found that God's will is the best outcome for my life, even when it seems to contradict what my desires are. There are many times when I've prayed for an outcome that I desired, and God has said, no, not yet. Who are we to pray for God's will to be done in our lives and then go and complain when we don't get the outcomes we want? How is that being fair to God? Martin Luther states it like this. Grant us grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering and adversity and to recognize them. Praying for God's will to be done clearly implies that our wills not be done all the time. Praying this prayer goes directly against what our Western culture tells us to do. Easily the most important feature of life in our modern Western society is choice or freedom to dictate one's own life. In fact, the only true wrong thing that we can do in our culture is to infringe on other people's choices. The oft-heard phrase, you do you, comes to mind. And the thing that our culture hates most is authority. And unfortunately, in this battle of wills, we in our selfish natures rail against God's authority and will also. And Jesus demonstrates the perfect way to live in the will of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to look at Matthew 26. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 26. It'll be on the screen. But Matthew 26, verse 36 to 46, is the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew he was about to be picked up, probably go through crucifixion. We don't know exactly what was going through his mind, but the Bible story tells it like this. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38, then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Apples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for just one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Verse 43, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. 
Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He knew what was coming. Three times he prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Jesus teaches us here how to submit to authority, even in the most difficult circumstances. In verse 37, we see that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And this word sorrowful is a strong Greek word meaning overcome with sorrow so much as to cause one's death. Many many scholars have noted the strangeness of this entire scene. First, why would the disciples include a story about the founder of their religion being terrified at the prospect of death? Clearly, they wouldn't have made this story up. It must have happened just as Matthew records it. In fact, all four Gospels record this story. And second, a cursory glance at Israel's, as well as the church's history, reveals hundreds of martyrs who gladly accepted death without so much as a trace of fear. Why is Jesus in agony here? Verse 39 gives us an insight into the difference between Jesus' death and all the other martyrs, where he said, My father... If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The cup is the difference. The cup throughout the Old Testament is repeatedly used as a metaphor for the wrath of God. In Jeremiah 25, verse 15 to 16, it says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So the cup is a metaphor for God's wrath and anger against the sin around. Already in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has begun to drink the cup of God's divine wrath against sin. But why does God's wrath begin to fall on Jesus as he's praying? In a sermon on this text, Tim Keller, a noted American theologian pastor, explains that Jesus the only perfect human being, knew what it was like to be in God the Father's presence when he prayed better than any human, more intimate than when other people prayed. But this time, when Jesus went to pray, instead of finding intimacy with God the Father, he found hell, he found separation. He was beginning to see what it would be like to be separated from God the Father, to not have that joy and love and peace that he usually found while praying. All other Christians who died so bravely with a sense of God's presence. But Jesus died with a sense of God's absence. He was starting to get a taste of what would come down on him on the cross. Psychologists say that the most traumatic experience a person can go through outside of the death of a loved one is a divorce or a breakup. In a romantic relationship, you have two people integrating and intertwining their lives together. A breakup is a ripping apart of those integrated lives. And I mentioned breakups just as a way to get a glimpse of the agony Jesus was suffering on the cross when he experienced that disintegration from the life of his father. But it isn't even close. From eternity past, God the Father has loved the Son with a perfect and unfailing love. And the Son has reciprocated that love back to his Father. And on the cross, Jesus experiences the unimaginable, the breaking of that bond. So what does it mean to pray your will be done? Jesus shows us two things. First, he shows us incredible integrity. Integrity is consistency in a person. They're the same no matter the circumstances. 
Here, Jesus is alone in the dark, praying to his Father, and he remains consistent. Yet not as I will, but as you will. At first glance, Matthew seems to be silent on God's response to Jesus' prayer and request to take the cup away. But it's in Luke that we see that God does actually respond. And that Jesus, even when requesting to take away what he knows is his Father's will, still lives in his Father's will. His Father gives him the strength to endure. In verse 42 to 43, it says, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And in verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Once Jesus necessarily wanted in that moment. But God responds and strengthens him for what his Father's will was. Second, Jesus shows us what it's like to trust God through the most difficult of circumstances. Trusting in God is saying that I don't have all the answers, but you do, God. The hardest times to trust God are when we don't like what he has to say. But this is what it means to submit to God's loving authority. Trusting God is the key. Martin Luther recognized that without this type of trust in God, we will try to take God's place and seek revenge on those who have harmed us. Ultimately, as Christians, we have to answer two questions. Do we trust God enough to accept his authority in our lives? Can we trust that he sees the big picture that we can't? Can we trust our lives in his hands? Do we accept his authority as both our creator and our savior and the king of this universe? Do we trust him enough to accept his authority in our lives? And secondly, in that trust and acceptance of his authority, will we be obedient to his will in our lives? Even though we can't see it all, even though we're scared, even though we might be afraid, taken into poverty like Job and possibly lose it all, will we still obey God's will? Will we still obey his call? Praying this, chair, uh, this prayer will change your life. It has mine, but we can be confident that God sees the big picture. He knows every single thread of our lives, and if we trust him, he'll weave a tapestry. And one day, we will fully see the way God does. Until that day, King David in the Psalms reminds us of what to do day by day. Be still and know that I am God. This is so much more than just a bumper sticker or a throwaway line. By submitting our will to God's will, we can be still. We can stop the chasing, the goal chasing. We can stop the worrying. We can stop the stress, the needless busyness of chasing those finish lines. We can just live in the knowledge that he is God and his will be done. Let's pray. Father, it is often easy for us to, to live in our selfishness and in our human nature, and it is difficult to get outside of that. It is really difficult to relinquish control of our lives and, and give it to you. It is a battle of wills, Lord, that the devil has set up, saying that you are not good, that you are not to be trusted. Yet we know that you are good, we know that you love us, and we know that you sent your son to die for us. Lord, help us to trust 
the plans that you have for our lives. In Jeremiah 29, you say the plans you have for us are good to help us and not to harm us. Lord, help us to trust you with the things that we cannot see. Given the limited perspective that we have, help us to just know that you have an outcome for us that will bring us life. And we look forward to the day when we can see the full picture, when we can see those times where we didn't understand, we didn't see why you said no in that moment or why you didn't accept our prayer for our lives and our wills. And we look forward to when we can be with you and understand our wills, of our lives, to you, because you do see it all. You love us, and you want the best for us, and your plans are amazing. In your name we pray. Amen.